0: All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke 12 for me. Where where you wanna go? (laughs) Luke 12, as you guys are flipping there, um, sorry, Luke 13, not 12. Um, And then maybe put your finger or put like the communication card, something like that in John 17, because we'll flip over there too. Um, while you guys are flipping there, let me catch you guys up. Most of you probably know or are already aware of, but uh, for those that don't, just kind of some things that are going on here at the branch and, and, and some exciting things, but things nonetheless. Um, so there's a quote that we're going to throw up on the screen that will kind of um, make sense and, and maybe tie some of this stuff together for us. Kind of the vision for the church. So um, the vision was to stop becoming a lake church and instead become a river church. In a lake church, people flow in and stay. It seeks to get more and more people around one pastor in one place. But in a river church, the place the people flow in and keep moving downstream. God takes them to other places to minister. The measurement becomes more about flow rate instead of volumes contained and about gallons per minute instead of gallons retained. And so back in January, the elders came together and said, okay, what is, what is God calling us to do over the next 10 years? And so we obviously know the Great Commission, we know the Great Commandment, we know to make disciples, but, but if we really did all those things, what would it really look like? And so as pursuing, and we felt, come and come, came across this quote and we said, this, this is what it looks like. Uh, for us to plant churches that plant churches, uh, for us to send out disciples literally everywhere. It's why we came to college context to, uh, to raise up disciples in the four years that they're here, and then when they graduate, send them anywhere, everywhere to plant churches, to um, be missionaries, whatever that looks like. So we just started praying and dreaming and bringing the rest of the staff and interns together. And so the conclusion we came to that if we can make disciples every two years uh, through missional communities, then we could be sending out churches and missionaries left and right. So maybe an easy goal, we use easy because if you do the math two years, what if we started a network of 10 churches within the next 10 years by making disciples every two years? Um, so we're going to have a network. So some of it looks like we're going to go to a certain, oh, in within college communities too. So for some of us, we're going to send people out to plant a church from scratch. Uh, for some, we're going to partner with existing work, some we might um, come together with an existing church and and adopt them into the network. There's no real limit of what this looks like. Uh, But the first big step was within the next three years, so that's 10 years, within the next three years we want to start three churches. And so we rolled out a couple weeks ago, Kyle and Jen, uh, who are sitting in the back, will be moving to Milledgeville this summer to start the branch Milledgeville this fall. And so we've asked, yeah, uh, we've asked you guys to pray and consider. Um, if the Lord is leading you that direction, we want to bless you and send you out to help college in with that work. Um, there's a college ministry called FAM that uh, some guys have started and, and they're getting ready to graduate and say, like, we don't we don't want this to end now. We feel like God wants this to be a church. And um, these guys also want to be church planners. So um, we're partnering with 50, 60 college students. We've got. Th- key leadership already in place. So the Lord just, just made it work. Um, so Kyle and Jen are gonna to try to go uh, any Thursday that they can to go down and visit Milledgeville, um, to visit with FAM, to watch what's taking place. Um, so if you're just interested in just seeing it, um, talk to Kyle. He, raise your hand real quick, Kyle. Um, talk to Kyle. You can. He'll get it with you. Um, if you feel like the Lord might be asking you to move, uh, definitely go down there and check it out. If you're a college student, it's pretty easy to transfer. So I hear um, I did it three times when I was in college, so it's pretty easy. Uh, so that's just the exciting thing. Um, we've already got a team of people praying for the next church plant location. That's way too early to talk about yet, but um, I, th- I feel like unless something changes, we're going to hit this three and three goal. Um, that will help us get to the ten and ten. Um, so that's just exciting. If you have any questions, please talk to us. Our vision is on the table. You can get a piece of paper about it. Um, but I don't want to spend the first ten minutes of every sermon talking about that. But it's exciting. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Sound good? We good this morning? I don't know what my arms are doing. All right, Luke thirteen uh, is where we're gonna be. So when I was in college, I took a philosophy class. Anyone have philosophy? Okay, so therefore, like anybody, uh, do they have philosophy majors? Okay, uh, that seems like a weird thing to major in. Uh, no offense, but but meaning like it's just philosophy, like. Who's right and wrong in philosophy? So, so I took a philosophy class when I was in college and I I thought I was going to love it because I love theology, but, but philosophy and theology didn't line up. Um, And here's what just kept making me so frustrated was it didn't matter how you arrived to to the end. It's all about the process. It's just about the process. And um, so it's kind of like that. Anyone, any math majors in here? I love math. Uh, yeah those nerds that are like oh it's so important to show your work like no it's not if I can get the answer without showing work then it's fine right we should just move on and all grow up um, so that's the same thing with philosophy you've got to track how it goes so the first day in philosophy class they like threw out this do the end justify the means you all heard of this before so we, we sat around for like four hours talking about, does the end justify the means? And I'm like, I can give you an answer if you want it. Or if we just want to flap our jaws longer, that's fine too. But did the end justify the means? And so in some instances, yes, very much so. The end justifies the means. Um, for example, sending Kyle out, or when we do this 10 and 10, um, we're going to be sending out young guys. I mean, Kyle is 26-ish, seven, Yes, uh, I, when, when my wife and I moved up here to plant, I was 26. Um, so in the world, like church world, um, like I don't have any, oh, I have a little bit now at the time, I had no seminary, college, no seminary. So in the church world, they're like, oh, you can't do that. But does the end justify the means? The means are we've got to plant churches that plant churches, and if we've got guys ready, then, then that's the end, let's do it. Uh, maybe one that doesn't work, we've got four kids, we want to save for college, right? So um, that's a good, the end good noble goal to be able to pay for our kids college. The means though would be to not pay taxes for the next 18 years and just hoard that aside to pay for our college. I don't think that the government would like those means do you think? Just in case any IRS is listening to this I pay my taxes. Do not audit me. It's not okay. So do the ends justify the means? We can kind of wrestle with that back and forth, but what we're gonna see this morning through Luke 13 is this idea of salvation. Um, And and just straight off the gate, you guys just have to look at me. This is gonna be a fun one to teach. This is gonna be, especially if you've grown up in the church within the Bible Belt, there's gonna be some things that Jesus, Jesus not Gabe, Jesus says it's gonna make us uncomfortable and rethink some of our positions. Because here's how salvation has looked like in the church. Whatever means possible. The ends are salvation. So whatever means possible it looks like, we gotta get people saved. So the end is good and noble salvation. Yes, by all means we want people to know Jesus. Uh, But but there's two questions in there. Do the ends really justify the means? And are we crystal clear on what the means are? And what the ends are? Do we actually know what salvation means, what salvation looks like? So Luke chapter 13 is where we'll pick it up, 22 through 30. Now, if you never heard this term, it's fine, but it's called expository preaching. It's one of our pillars here that we're just gonna teach through the books of the Bible. And the joy of that is that I don't get to skip over this text um, because we just teach verse by verse. So Luke 13, 22 through 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, he being Jesus, Teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, and someone said to him, Lord, will those sorry, will those who are being saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many I tell you will seek to enter and will not be able. When one when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Verse 27. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all who are workers of evil. Verse 28. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Verse 30, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. You guys ready to do this this morning? All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, would you just speak to us? God, this is not our words. Uh, This is your words. This is your truth. This is your gospel, And, and Father, would we understand it? would we be able to apply it into our lives, would we be able to preach faithfully the gospel to our friends and to our neighbors, and we understand the truth and the depth of your salvation. And so, Father, we just pray this morning that um, we would not listen to anything that I were to say, Father, but let it truly be from you. It's your name that we pray. Amen. So just to kind of make sure we're on the same page, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is his death, right? So when he gets there, that's a, and he's already talked about this. He said, hey, this is where I'm going. Uh, I've got a cross to bear. I've got this thing that you can't do for me. I've got to do this. So in Luke 9, he starts the way. And he's meandering through all these small towns and villages, getting to his impending death. But he's stopping to teach all along the way. And one of the major themes that we've seen throughout the book of Luke is, is has it divisiveness right that uh, he said he came not to bring peace but a sword and we see this taking place that he's teaching really really hard things and he's confronting religious people to say listen here there's a divide here um, that we've got to understand you're either with me or you're not. And we have to define what it means to be with me or not. So um, last week we looked at Jesus teaching within a tabernacle, um, him offending because he healed on the Sabbath, and he just laid down. Listen, your religiousness is not going to save you. Just because what you do or what you say does not mean that you truly have faith. So we looked at James, and we understand that, that works without faith, or faith without works is dead, but we also looked at, can you have works without faith? Yeah. That's probably the majority of the church in the South. That we're so busy beating the legalistic drum of saying, oh, well, faith without works is dead. You've got to be doing something. And we've pushed that pendulum so far that now we've created this secondary category of saying, but you can also have works without faith. You just do what's expected of you, then you'll be fine, then you'll be a Christian. And so this guy just walked up, probably has been following Jesus and and listening to his teaching. He asked this question, hey, uh, back in verse... Yep, I should know that. Uh, Y'all just talk amongst yourself for a second. Here we go, verse 23. uh, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now here's the great part about Jesus, which like intimidating part too, um, because he knows your heart, he knows what you're asking. So this guess is, is it gonna be few? And, and we'll get into why he asked that question. Um, the Jews thought it was just a selected amount of Jews that were gonna be saved. So he said, is it just gonna be a few? And Jesus goes, man, you're, you're kind of asking the wrong question, let me, let me divide you uh, this way. Are, are you going to be saved? Don't worry about the few. What does it look like for you? What does it look like for us as a group individually? Salvation is always individualistic, right? It is you and the Lord. Are you going to be saved? Now, I mean, just this week I've heard things and I've seen things and, and just the way that the modern church presses salvation. So this morning, here's what I want us to do. I want us to have a fresh vision of soteriology, which is a fancy word for the doctrine of salvation. I want us to understand soteriology and what it means for us and how it changes. But please hear me, there's going to be things that scripture, not me scripture is going to say, that's going to rub against you because it's not been the way that we've seen it take place throughout the church. Um, there's going to be things that I'm going to say that might like, oh, I don't know about that. Good. That's that's the good part. Talk about it in MCs this week. Talk about it within DNAs this week. Press lesson to scripture, argue with me in your head, but, but don't just argue, like discuss it, talk through someone with it. Uh, I don't know, study your Bible more about it. Do, do something with the questions that you're going to ask, because here's the, the, the crux of the question, especially, not just for me, if you grew up in some kind of church, just raise your hand. Okay, so here's the question. Salvation is the end. Do we know what salvation is? And if we do, then what are the means to get people to salvation? because what we'll see is uh, not this. So verse 24, the first thing that that scripture that Jesus lays out to us, uh, number one, is that salvation isn't easy. That, That saving grace, that being a Christ follower, is not easy, verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Now just that scripture alone you don't have to raise your hand. How many times have you heard that preached? I mean, how many times has it been just anyone just come on down? So just there alone, we're starting to see some like, ugh, oh, that's, that's not what I understood. Because verse 24, strive. In the Greek, this, me, this word means fat, to fight, to agonize with. Strive, fight for your salvation. Even other scripture to say, work out your salvation with fear, and trembling. So, what does it mean to strive? Because before I go any further, I know there's some, I'm not saying that salvation is work based at all. So, we have to understand. I mean, w- one of the big things we are going to be doing this morning is just looking at Scripture very hermeneutically, meaning we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We can't take, oh, you see this word strive? Uh, okay, this is what this means. So, forget all of other Scripture. We've got to strive, we've got to have work based salvation because that's nowhere else in the scripture. So how do we uh, juxtapose this word strive, this fight, this agonizing for salvation with what we see throughout scripture? What is this fight? So when I was a junior in college, I was a volunteer firefighter, which is funny looking back at it now uh, because I can't see someone cut their finger without almost passing out. I don't know what I was thinking was gonna take place there. Uh, Like the older I get, the more of a softy I get. I blame it on my dad. Uh, There's one time a stool fell on my toe and we thought it was broken. So he's gonna take me to the emergency room, but he had to sit and calm down before he could take me to the emergency room. So I'm sitting here in agony, like, hey pops, whenever you're ready, uh, my toe's broke, but just, yeah, you take care of you first, but it's actually a good thing because he would have passed out and we all would have died and not been fun. So anyways, uh, that was not in the notes. Um, Firefighter, and one of the things that we had to do, um, how many builders in here? Anybody build, work on how? Okay, uh, a wall. How far across are the studs in a wall? 16-inch on center, right? So firefighters, you have to have your axe. You have to knock out the sheetrock with your big oxygen tank on your back and the mask and the helmet. You've got to get your body through a 16 on center wall, so if there's a fire in the room, you've got to get to the next room. You've got to have the skills to get the sheetrock cleared out with a huge air tank. And I was a lot skinnier then, so it was a little easier, but I'm um, like, I'm not gonna do that anymore. Uh, scoot your body around and get through the wall. So here's the first thing that you had to do is you had to drop all that wasn't necessary. If you didn't need it to survive, let go of it, to, else you're not going to get through that wall but you had to fight and strategize and get your body through. And then, and, and once we kind of got it figured out, then they'd put a mask over us uh, to simulate smoke. So you have no idea where you are. You got to find the wall, tear off the sheetrock, and get your body through without seeing anything. It was a fight. It was a struggle to get through that. So what Jesus is saying is there's a fight or a struggle to get through. It. And the first thing you've got to do is drop everything that matters to you. The fight and the struggle is yourself. What does salvation look like? Why is it a fight? Why is it a struggle? Because it's not our ways, but it's his ways. We've got to understand that Christ is Lord and be willing to drop everything else that matters to us and follow him uh, unashamedly. And that is a struggle. That is a fight. For us to say Jesus is Lord and actually mean it is a struggle and a fight because what that really looks like is death. What it looks like is us dying to ourselves, for the salvation of Christ. Here's, here's just a couple of scriptures to help understand this. Matthew sixteen twenty four through uh, 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall it gain a man to return his soul? So what Jesus is pressing into is, uh, if you lose, you win. What does salvation look like? It means you losing yourself so that you can win Christ. But if you win, you lose. If you keep yourself, if you're unable, if you're unwilling to drop all that you have to follow Christ, you lose. I mean, there's this famous passage in Luke that we preached not too long ago, um, where a man said, hey, let me go bury the dead so that I can come follow you. Now, scripturally, we know that his dad wasn't actually dead. What he meant was, um, let me stay and wait till my dad dies to get my inheritance, and then I'll come follow you. We all know the story of the rich young ruler that said, well, like, I've got too much possession, so I don't want to leave that stuff to follow you. And the imagery is here. Salvation means I'm willing to let go of everything to follow after Christ. That is what true salvation means. That's what it looks like for us, and that's not an easy process. That is a weighty process for us to w- work our way through, and it only takes place by God wooing us to himself, going, no, I'm better than that. I'm better than that. You think that possession is good. I've got 10 million of those. You think a good stake is good. I own every stake on a 1,000 hills. You've got to let go of these things, and you've got to follow me. This isn't an easy process. And salvation isn't something that we should just walk into haphazardly. Yeah, sure, that was a good sermon, preacher. Let's, let's go for it. Where do I sign, right? Salvation isn't easy. So my first question, just as we're starting to wrestle through this for you to ponder, what did your salvation experience look like? I don't wanna use the word experience, but, but what was it that led you to the saving grace of Christ? What was that moment like for you? The other, thing that we've seen, other theme that we see Jesus pulling out uh, is in verse 25 through 27 is that salvation often is hindered because of a false sense of security. When once the, verse 25, when once the master of the house had risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer, I do not know where you came from. Verse 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. We were with you. We followed you. We walked with you. And here's his response. I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. So a false sense of security is not salvation. Now here's where we just have to get real muddy. So I'm just going to jump on in. Instead of trying to ease in, just jump in. Uh, How many times have you said the sinner's prayer? Have you grown up in church? We said this thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again, right? I mean, I just, I could, you know how the pastor would say, repeat after me? Um, Well, in my little smart aleck mind when I was growing up, I would make him repeat after me. So I would say it first. So it was like he was receiving the prayer because I knew it verbatim. I just knew it. And then my pastor would stand up front, and I love this guy, he would stand up front, and then we would sing, all to Jesus' eyes. You remember that? And then it was he thought he was so sly because he would put his finger hands up behind his back to tell the worship leader, cut it off, no one's coming. And then that was it. Every single Sunday. It was predictable. He thought he was so sly, like, cut it. <laughs> now, again, I'm not knocking altar calls. You have to understand this. But what we have to be super careful of is this, are we giving people false assurance? because Jesus is opening up a category for us saying, listen, there's going to be people that were in the church, that were in the pews, that might have even said something correctly, that when it comes to eternity with me, they won't be there. And for me as a pastor, that terrifies me. The worst thing I would want you guys to do is have any false security. So we prolong baptism a little bit to make sure that you understand what it means. Because I don't want you to look back and say, well, I was baptized once. I don't want you to get to eternity and go, but Gabe told me Like Gabe told me, if you listen, listen to next time I baptize. I think, is Paul here? No, Paul's going to be baptized when the water gets a little warmer, I think. Um, Listen to when I baptize Paul, because I'll ask him, who is your Lord and Savior on that profession? It's not me saying anything. It's you are professing Christ on that. That's why I'm baptizing you, because I want to be certain that you know what you're getting into. So there was a a couple years ago, I took my daughter to a father-daughter dance at a church. It was a great event. Um, now, this church, we're all good friends, and so uh, it was probably from me to Mark where the, the pa- one of the pastors was up on the stage, and so it kind of gave like a little gospel presentation, um, and then he said, okay, if anyone wants to receive Christ, you just bow your head and say this prayer with me. I know my daughter, okay? She was five at the time. I knew she was not ready for this process. So I get her, and I turn her, and She's got a little friend with her. So I turn them both around on the floor right this close to the pastor and just start talking to him. Like trying just to avoid this conversation, avoid this prayer, because I know that they're five years old and they don't know what this means. I've never asked this guy what he thought about that because I, it probably wouldn't end well. That I was distracting them and maybe the ones around us unintentionally from the sinner's prayer. But what I don't want my daughter to grow up thinking, well, I say this prayer, Dad, and I'm good. Because Scripture has given us a category of, that, that doesn't mean anything. One of the fastest demographics of salvations within our tribe, our circle, is five to nine-year-olds. Now, again, I'm not saying this is not some blanket statement. I'm just saying my daughter's six, and I know she doesn't understand it yet. Some might, and that's great, and praise God for that. But we need to kind of look at this number and go, Mike, what is happening here? Is there any chance that we're giving false assurance to salvation? Is there any chance, because if we've looked at salvation isn't easy, well then can a five-year-old really wrestle with the choice of salvation? Can a five-year-old go, man, I guess I'm going to give up cereal for God. I guess I'll, I'll give up, I love Paw Patrol, but Paw Patrol's gone for Jesus. I mean, but can we, we laugh, but can, can we really wrestle with that? Is there any really thing for a five-year-old to lay down and say, no matter what, I'm going to follow Christ, no matter what I'm in? fallen after him. Now please hear me. I'm not saying that because you might have become a Christian at five, six, seven, that's great. Praise God for that. Here's what I am saying though. Almost every student that we've baptized here has almost the same story. I made a decision when I was six. I didn't know what it meant. And I rebelled and I ran, but here in college, I actually was saved by Christ. So we can get into the weeds of, were they really saved when they were six or not? I don't, that's not debatable. What I'm saying is false assurance is a real thing and we better be careful because Jesus gives us a category for this. We've got to be careful. Now, here's probably what you're thinking, if, if you're arguing with me at this point. Well, don't you know Romans 8, Pastor? Don't you know if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is king, that, that you will be saved? Don't you? Yeah, I do, I do. But you've got to remember hermeneutics. You've got to remember what this means. When we profess that Jesus is Lord, James would say, you, then where's, where's the action? Where's the works that's becoming of this faith? Because we cannot belittle this thing down to witchcraft seances. That if you walk this perfect aisle and if you say this perfect thing the perfect way, then you will be saved. That's witchcraft. That is not Christ- That's not biblical Christianity. Jesus says, "You follow me. You drop everything and you follow me." That is what salvation looks like. I mean, there's a the guy. He, I don't think he's here this morning, but legitimately had to see a counselor because he developed an OCDness over being religious that he never thought he was praying the right way. He never, I mean, to the extent that when he was playing sports, if he went to give credit to God, if he didn't feel like he held his elbow up high enough, then God was mad at him. So we've got to understand that we've created this false assurance in this weird category of just do this and say this and you'll be saved. And I'm not trying to knock anywhere that you've came from, but I'm saying for for us at the branch, the elders at the branch, this is a heavy burden for us that we never want to give false assurance. We never want to get false security ever, ever. Because we're going to be my least favorite scripture ever. Teachers and preachers will be judged more harshly. You guys are good. Kyle, you're not. Have fun, right? I mean, I'm going to be judged for what I'm telling you guys. So if, I'm not trying to not do this in love, but I'm trying to be very careful with what Christ has asked us to do. And I think the other, the other category we see with salvation from this text, we pick it up in verse 29. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some will be first who will be last. Who's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about uh, non-Jews, the Gentiles, the world, that salvation is not just for you. See, just like the Bible Belt, in the Jewish culture, people go like, well, my parents, like, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm good. You can't touch me. I'm, a, I'm the Jew of all Jews. I get this thing. I'm going to be in heaven with God just because of who I am. Not because of any faith, not because of any salvation, because I'm Jewish and Jewish culture says I'm a descendant of Abraham, I'm good. So you do your thing, Jesus man. Uh, I'll see you in heaven one day and I'm not going to do anything. Now, we, that sounds absurd and ridiculous, uh, but just start asking people that grew up in the South about their salvation. Uh, well, yeah, my parents are members over here. So I'm, I'm a, okay, so your parents' membership at such and such church equips you for salvation. Is that what i oh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've grown up in church, I'm good. Okay, just, just to be clear, what I want to understand is, you're telling me that because you went to church from the time you were born to the time you were 15, that that means you're saved, is what you're saying to me. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I'm saying, but okay, just, just to be clear. Uh, if, if I can just be so bold to say, uh, will you show me that? I've never actually done that, just so you know. I'm not that big of a jerk. I talked tough. I would never do that. But seriously, where, where do we get this idea coming from? Where do the Jews get this idea that just because we've done this and we're a part of this family, that therefore we enter into salvation? So these Jews in the crowd just got furious at what Jesus said. The salvation is not just for the Jews, but there's going to be people from the east and the west and the north and south coming into this kingdom that are going to be reclining at the table. And guess what, Jews? Some of you won't be because you're not actually following me, that salvation isn't actually yours. Uh, here's the deal. I have a three-year-old, his name's Grady. You guys met Grady? He's the man. Here's what I know about Grady. Um, if he were to walk in right here, I could beat him up no problem. <laughs> now Grady's turning into a little man, like he likes to work on things and he's got muscles, but if he were to come into me, into this square octagon MMA carpet we've got going on, and said, hey dad, let's fight, I'd kick him in the mouth and it would be over. <laughs> Game, set, match, done. Have a good day, Grady. Now if Conor McGregor were to walk into the room and said, hey, pastor, I-, I would try to do an Irish accent, but I'm not even gonna try. Let's fight. Wouldn't be so easy, right? Right, if Floyd Mayweather were to walk into the room, uh, Mike Tyson in his prime could knock an eight-year-old's head off his shoulders. Just so you know, just the impact of his punch could just like de- decapitate. Don't, don't focus on that for the sermon. Just, just so you know, that's how powerful his punch was. Mike Tyson were to come into the room, as crazy as Mike Tyson is. Mike, if you're listening to this podcast, you're the man. Uh, as crazy as he is, would destroy me. So where am I getting at with this? That we can always find someone that we're better than. Unless you're in solitary confinement within a state penitentiary, you're always going to be able to compare yourself and say, well, I'm not this guy, but at least I'm not that guy. And for salvation for us, the majority of us will have this conversation. Well, I mean, I've got to have salvation because I'm not like so-and-so. I'm not like my neighbor. My neighbor is a dirtbag, but like, look at me, I'm, I'm better than him, so therefore I'm good. And we let this pride start to well up in me with, I know I don't have everything figured out, but at least I'm not this guy. So what the Jews were doing is like, listen, like, yeah, I know, I don't have everything figured out, but, but I'm better than the Gentile, so I've got to have salvation, right? Like, I've got to have my way into the kingdom because I'm not a Jew. I mean, I'm not a Gentile. I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm part of the tribe. I'm part of the crew. I'm part of God's people. I've, I've got to get in. And Jesus is going, listen, you're, there's going to come a day where you're going to knock on the door, and the door's going to be closed, that you're not going to have an opportunity, that your pride is going to ruin you. One of the parables that I was just studying this week, Matthew 25, you don't have to flip there, um, but it was about 10, basically 10 bridesmaids that would get ready for a wedding. And so the bridesmaids, they were getting ready. And um, back in that day, the, the marriage is a little different than it is now. There wasn't invitations of like, oh, Thursday, who gets married on a Thursday? But uh, anyone get married on a Thursday? Random? Okay, nope. Uh, did you really? Oh, you eloped. That's awesome. Uh, so like get married on a Thursday, six o'clock, I'm going to send out the invitations six o'clock. Here it is. No, whenever the bridegroom would go and add an addition onto his folks house, then he would come back. The bridegroom would be announced. The trumpets would sound and the wedding would take place. So the bridesmaids were all sitting around with the bride waiting for the groom to show up. And five of them had extra oil for their lamps and the other five didn't. Right. So in the story, in this parable that Jesus is telling, um, they all fall asleep. It turns to night. The bridegroom shows up. The trumpets announce um, The five that were, that were persistent that they were ready for this, that had extra oil for their lamps, turned on their lamps, and left. But the other five didn't. That they let their pride get in the way, going, no, surely he'll be back before then. Surely it won't be night before the, br- the groom shows up. So they were starting to beg around, hey, give me some oil for my lamp. Can you help me out with this lamp? And they said, no, I, don't, I can't. We, we don't have enough to spare. We were ready, you weren't. So they go to the parting, the imagery or the wording is the exact same. Verse Matthew 25, verse 11. Afterwards, the other bridesmaids came also saying, Lord, open the door to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch there for the hour. Be ready. Don't let your pride destroy you. Don't think that you've got it figured out, that you're going to be okay, that because of your family, because of where you came from, that you're going to be fine. It's not what salvation means for us. It's not what soteriology is. Salvation is harder. It's agonizing. It's fighting to dying to ourselves. Right? There can be no pride mixed in with salvation, and we cannot have a false sense of security. So, so if, I could, if I could maybe start to put a bow on this. Here, here's where I think we've missed it. Did the ends justify the means? There, there's, there's one character I just encourage you to study. We don't have a ton of time to get into him. But, but basically where some of this just chaos came from, the guy named Charles Finney. So Charles Finney was in New York. He was this evangelist, a lawyer turned evangelist and, and priest and all this stuff. But for him, the means were salvation, but his salvation was off he thought that there was enough in us, it's kind of this semi-Pelagian idea, there's enough in us to choose God for ourselves. So all that, that Finney pressed was the choice, the decision that you have it in you to choose Christ. So I'm going to set up my preaching in a way, I'm going to set up the room in such a way that I almost manipulate you to be able to make this choice. Now, if you just Google Finney, there's going to be people singing his praises because tens of thousands of people came to know Christ under the preaching of Charles Finney. But I would beg and ask and look at, did they really come to salvation? Did they really actually know the salvation of Christ or were they forced us to make a decision? Because if the ends justify the means, then I'm just going to get a pistol and start walking down the street and holding the people's heads and say, I'm about to shoot you. I'm not going to do this. you. so I'm going to shoot you, heaven or hell. Which one do you want? Oh, I want heaven. Good choice, say this prayer after me. You know how many converts I would get from this? Good gracious, man. You'd be reading about me everywhere. Do the ends justify the means? Is that true salvation though? So what Charles Finney, I mean, he even invented this thing called the anxious bench where people could come sit and get anxious. They would have seats in the auditorium. If I knew I was bringing a lost person, I would sit here so that as Finney was preaching, he could say, so you, sir, do you wanna die and go to hell? Like, No. I'll take Jesus. So do the ends justify the means is what I'm getting at. Is that true salvation? Can salvation come from the best sermon in the world and a little bit of manipulation? No, salvation is only from the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's only faith alone through grace alone is what salvation means. So John 17, 3, flip over. This This is where I think people will just, as far as soteriology, just get it so backwards. And then our means get so messed up because we misunderstand the ends. The ends, as you're flipping, the ends of salvation is not eternity in heaven. Please hear me say this. The end of salvation is not heaven. That's part of. It's not solely. John 17, 3 says it so clearly, and this is Jesus' words. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. This is salvation. It's not when you die. It's today. Today that you know God and you know Jesus Christ. This is salvation. This is eternal life, that you know God and his love for you and from his love that he sent Christ to die for the cross for you, that he lost so that you could win. So salvation for us don't sound selfish. Don't get it all, well, if I gotta lose, then I gotta win. That's not fair. Look at Christ and what he did for you. He ultimately lost on his death so that you and I could win by salvation. This is eternal life that we know him. So are you telling me then, pastor, that I am walking in eternal life right now? Yes, I am. Salvation is not heaven once you die. Salvation is now. What do you think Jesus kept teaching, or John the Baptist kept, the kingdom of God is near, and when Jesus got here, the kingdom of God is here. Eternity is now. The kingdom has come now. So when we start talking about do the ends justify the means as far as sociology, what we're asking is, if salvation is at this point in heaven, then yeah, let's do whatever we need to do to manipulate people to follow Christ. If that's what it really looks like, then, then sure, let's put the pressure on so that people will make a momentary decision to follow Christ. It's never really going to happen, but it makes us feel good about ourselves. Guys, I can't sleep. I would not be able to be your pastor if we did that. I cannot give you false assurance, but here's where I take so much comfort in knowing that eternity starts now. This is eternal life now. The kingdom of God is here. So what does salvation look like for us? It means following Christ with everything we have today. That it means that God has regenerated our heart, that has given us a new heart to follow after him. And based on that salvation, our life is going to look a lot different. So I can give you scary statistics and I can make you think all this kind of stuff and body, 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 and make you to get a momentary decision. But what I'm asking is, and when we pray for these 26,000 that Kyle will talk about in a minute, what we're asking is for God to change their heart. That ultimately we know regeneration is not up to us and salvation is not up to us, it's only up to Christ alone regenerating, giving us a new heart. So when we beg, when Jesus gives us, hey, don't pray for the harvest, pray for the laborers. I will take care of the harvest. We gotta pray for the laborers to get out and make disciples. That's what salvation means. That's what soteriology looks like for us. So, So here's my question for you. Was your salvation based on a prayer that you said that did nothing for your heart? What was your salvation experience? Did you count the cost of following after Christ? Was there something welling up in you that uh, I've got to follow Christ no matter what? C.S. Lewis would call it the Holy Ghost towns, that he released them on you, he's been pursuing you, he's been chasing you, or was your decision, I don't want hell, so give me Jesus. Do you have false assurance Do you have a pride in you that's going, I'm not that guy, so I must be good? That I don't drink, and I don't cuss, and I don't dip, and I don't this, so like, surely that's salvation, right? We're missing the point. Salvation is eternal life now. It's leaving everything because of what Christ has done for us. I know I've used a bunch of action verbs to leave everything aside to follow after him. But the only way we can ever do this is because understanding what Christ has done for us. That is where the essence of salvation starts. Because Christ and his cross, he's opened up the way, he's given us the faith to believe and, and leave everything and follow after him. So, so my question is, is, we enter into a time of communion is, what does that look like for you? Is that your story? That you felt God willing after you and pursuing after you? And you say, God, I don't, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what this looks like, but man, I'm going to lay it all down to follow after you because you are good. I mean, we sang it. We, some of us screamed it a minute ago that he is good. Oh, oh. Right? Do we believe that? Because that's what salvation is. So I'm going to pray for us. Uh, And then we're just going to, I just want you to meditate and wrestle with and think through your own salvation experience. and, And when you're ready, when you know that Christ has saved you and your life will never be the same, that's when communion is set up. That is when we can go back there and celebrate all that Christ has done for us through the cross. That when there was no way, he made a way. That when he laid his life down, he lost so that therefore we could win. So when we break the body, I mean, that's us breaking the, not literal, but that's us symbolically breaking the bones or the the skin of Christ and saying, this is you, I'm going to do this in remembrance of you. And we dip it into the juice that's representing his blood to remember him losing for us so that we could win. So does salvation mean we must do all these things? No, but because of what Christ has done, we get to. We get to. So let me pray for us, and then we will segue into communion. Uh, Father, we are so grateful for you. Jesus, we are so grateful that you've given us uh, your scripture for us to study. And God, for us to admit where we're wrong. So there have been many of churches and many of pastors that have been more concerned with their numbers than true salvation. So, Father, we just pray this morning that we would know John 17, 3, that we would know you, that eternity isn't heaven for us, but eternity is right now, that your kingdom is here, that you're with us. And when we get to glory, when we get to be with you forever, with no sin, with no death, with nothing separating, that's going to be the greatest party ever. But we have that opportunity now as well. So God, I thank you for so many of us in this room that have counted the cost, that have heard your call of salvation, have followed you in it. Father, when we say you are king, that you are Lord, we mean it. And yes, we struggle and fall, and we constantly are putting idols ahead of you. Father, but you gently lead us into repentance. But Father, my prayer for those in the room that might not know that experience. God, I pray that they would talk to somebody. I pray they would grab a friend, they'd grab an elder, they would um, wrestle with the fact, um, is salvation really mine? Have I really repented and believed? Have I turned from my old self to follow Christ? Has God regenerated? Has God given me a new heart? Has my desires changed? God, the salvation isn't as easy as once we once thought. That it's not simply saying a prayer and doing nothing with it, but that prayer comes from the heart change that is already given to us through you. So, God, I pray that you would just work, that you would be wooing people even now, leading them to repentance. God, I pray there would be no false assurance in this room. There would be no pride in this room, but because of who my family is or because of what I've done or what I am doing, I'm good. But we would base all of our salvation on grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. As we take communion this morning, let us remember and celebrate what you've done for us so that we can say this prayer. What you've done for us so that we can have salvation. What you've done for us to uh, fulfill the law. And your motivation for all of that was just love. God, that you loved us so much and you were... Um, obsessed with getting glory for your Father, that this is what you've done for us. So, Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for your love. It's your name that we pray. Amen.